This morning's readings from 1 John chapter 4, verse 7 to 12. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only Son into the world, that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us, and his love is made complete in us. We know that we live in him and he in us, because he has given us of his Spirit, and we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to the Saviour of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in him and he in God. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in him. In this way, love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. Because in this world we are like him. There is no fear in love, but perfect love uh, drives strives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he is a liar. For anyone who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And he has given us this command, whoever loves God must also love his brother. This is God's word. Well, good morning. Let me add my welcome. Uh, my name is Matt Fuller. It's lovely to uh, to see you. And um, those are very beautiful words, aren't they? Let me let me lead us in a prayer that we'd understand them rightly. Our Father, what wonderful words of love that um, have been written there. We pray we'd understand them rightly. We don't just want um, these beautiful words to wash over us. We want to understand what they mean and therefore how we should live. So please be at work. Be at work here this morning amongst us, giving us understanding, giving us hearts that love to respond to you because you first loved us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. It's a fairly obvious thing that the way... The way you are loved will affect the way you love others. The love you know as a child growing up in a family, how, how that, how you are loved, that will affect you. Have an impact, possibly throughout your adult life, probably throughout your adult life. In our family, we've, um, probably about the last two years, we've been involved, uh, with adoption services. And, um, a not uncommon story would be the story of, I call her Elsa. But this is a fairly common thing that you would hear. So Elsa grew up in a family, or grew up with a, um, a mother, where she was severely neglected. No one really looked after her at all. Mother would just go out and leave this toddler on her own in the house. And so the toddler grew up with that sort of level of neglect, having to fend for herself. Would have to find her own food, age two. Would eat all sorts of unhelpful things. Would fight to get her own way, because that's how she grew up, eventually. Uh, she was adopted. Her mother clearly couldn't cope, wasn't able to. So eventually she was adopted, age five. Elsa entered a new family, with um, a, new, a new set of family, then new parents, who were going to 
love her. But at first, the new school that Elsa goes to with her new family, well, she's difficult. She goes to school, but she steals everything that she can lay her hands on. She steals the pens and the pencils from the other children. Even age five, in the lunch queue, she steals food and puts it in her bag for later, just in case, just in case there's no food. She's violent. She lashes out. She hits the other children because she's never known love. She's not able to share. She can't sit and cooperate with work with other people. She's never known love. But slowly over time, as the years go by, six, seven, eight, being in the family where her parents do show her a consistency of love, over a while it takes a long time, but she starts to change. She starts to change. Age 10, she's doing well. She can share at school. Doesn't steal things anymore. Makes real progress. Is able to cooperate and work with other people because now she knows what love is. And the way you are loved will affect the way you treat other people. I mean, it's a fairly stark example. But that's true, we know that. The love we receive will affect how we love other people. But that really is what John is saying here in this reading. There's a lot going on. It's a fairly um, uh, fairly dense little passage, really. But uh, the, the verse that we had read at the children's time, there's the simple summary. I mean, I could say that and sit down, really. But verse uh, chapter 4 and verse 19, really his, here is the point of what we're looking at this morning. We love because God first loved us. That's John's point. Christians will love one another because they know the love of their Father. If you're joining us, we've been looking at this letter of 1 John since September, pretty much. And um, it's a a letter that John has written to a church that's unsettled. Some members of the church had left and uh, set up their own new church, which they thought was better. We could call it NASCOM. The new and superior church of the Messiah. That's what they decided to call their new church. So that sums it up, NASCOM. Because they thought, well, we're better. We, uh, we have a better sort of God than you. And John is writing to his church and saying, it's okay. Don't be unsettled by NASCOM. They may say they're new and they're superior. People always do. You're fine. You're genuine believers. Don't be unsettled by them. You can know for certain that you're the real deal. You're not missing out. And repeatedly he said that there are three marks that'll show that you're genuinely believers. One, you'll obey what God commands. Two, you'll confess that Jesus is both God and man who died for you. And three, you'll love one another. And John repeatedly says the same points. If you've been here all term, you may be thinking, oh, I can't have got that by now. Because he does a little bit go round in circles. The letter is perhaps better to call it, it's a bit like a circular walk. Three times John goes round the same subject matter of those three marks of genuine believers. So chapter 1, verse 5 to 228, chapter 229 to 46. And here this morning we start the last circuit uh, around this walk. But each time it gets a little bit deeper, I think. The language he uses is a little bit stronger or more emotive. There's a little bit more bite to it. So the letter is perhaps a little bit like going for a walk in the Lake District. You're walking around a small lake. 
the first time you do it, it's raining. And it looks pretty, but you can't quite tell. The second time you go around, it's dry. Ah, nice, much nicer. The third time you walk around, beautiful sunshine. Is there a more beautiful place on earth, you tell yourself? And that's a little bit like this letter. As we start the third cycle, the language John uses gets a little bit stronger or deeper. So the the point really this morning, we love because he loved us. Let me break it down this way. The first uh, few verses, verses 7 to 11, really emphasizing the simple point, God loved us. We spend most of our time looking at that. And then briefly, there are three little things that flow out of that. But the main idea then really, verses 7 to 11, God loved us by sending his son to atone for us. Maybe, yeah, let me read it again. Verse 7 starts off with a little command. Verse 7. Dear friends, let us love one another because love comes from God. Very simple. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. Now, this is, uh, I, this is often chosen as a wedding sermon. I don't know if you noticed that um, or... or felt familiar as it was read, if you've been around in church. I think possibly the most popular thing I've spoken on at weddings uh, in my absolutely unacademic poll of such things. But um, it's very popular. I mean, you can see why. You should love one another. God loves you. And that is true and wonderful. And yet the point is, it's not really about romantic love between a man and a woman. It isn't that hard on a wedding day to stand next to someone who you find very attractive and you know that they think you're great, and say, I love you. In truth, if you can't do that on your wedding day, you really are in trouble. It's not hard on the wedding day to make such a declaration. And you could read it and say, well, um, I love my spouse, and therefore, I know God. I've been born of God and know God. That isn't his point. His point is, in a church setting, do you love other people? In a church setting, do you... Uh, love the the um, the superficial person who, despite the fact you speak to every week, can never remember your name, let alone what's going on in your life. They just don't care about you. Do you love that person? Do you love the... It's just slightly difficult because their accent is so thick you can barely work out anything that's saying. Do you love that person? Or do you think, oh, I just can't be doing with it. It's just too hard work. Do you love that sort of person? Do you love the aggressive person? who always seems to have an issue with you, having a normal... They take offense at everything you say. Do you love that person? It's that sort of love John is talking about. Do you love awkward people? Well, if you do, he says, everyone who loves the awkward in a church setting, well, they're the ones who've been born of God. And what is love? Well, he defines it, verse 9, and particularly verse 10. Verse 9, this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. It's quite interesting, isn't it, to know what God says love is? I mean, lots of people sing about love. Many songs will define it. This is quite an interesting definition. Verse 10, this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Well, that doesn't scan very well, does it? That's not going to make many songs. Uh, That sort of sentence. What does that mean? Well, let me just sort of highlight two things about this sort of love. It's unmerited and it's sacrificial. It's unmerited, says John. This is love. 
Not that we loved God, but that he loved us. Again, if someone just shows you a wonderful love, if someone thinks that you're wonderful, it's quite easy to love them back. It's a sort of self-love, really. You're just enjoying their enjoyment of you. That's not hard. John's point, God loved us when we didn't love him. God loved us when we, actually, when we'd rejected him and declared him enemies. Or we declared ourselves enemies of him. Now, that's always a bit odd, people say. Uh, most people, I, I guess if you asked them in the street, went out into Shepherd's Market at uh, this lunchtime, um, w- would you call yourself one who trusts in Jesus Christ? No, no. Are you an enemy of God? Oh, no, no. Indifferent, indifferent. Every so often I'll go and, I'll go and see him. I'll go to church once a year. He doesn't live in church. anyway. But every so often I'll go and see him. And um, you know, on an occasion I might speak to him. I mean, you know, I guess... We're all right, me and God, I don't trouble him, he doesn't trouble me. That's okay. But enemies, it's just a little bit too strong. That is, a, that is how the Bible says we are. Enemies. They don't like it. But the, one of the common pictures the Bible would give us in defining it would be, well, we are a little bit like the ungrateful children. Brought up by wonderful parents, delightful parents, charming parents who did all things wisely and well for us. But we grow up as the ungrateful child who says, I'm I'm not interested in you. I'm not going to speak to you. I don't want to see you. I don't like your rules. I don't like your culture. I don't like everything you stand for. I don't like you. I like your stuff. So please send money on a regular basis. Please send presents to me and my family. In fact, please die so I can have your inheritance. That'll be best of all. I don't like you. I want your stuff. And ungrateful children who also mistreat our siblings. Abusive to them. Unkind to them. Dismissive of them. And God is a father who looks down and says, or a parent who looks down perhaps better and says, well, what is that? You just want my stuff, but you don't want me. You mistreat others. No, I'm personally offended by that. In fact, as a perfectly just God, I'm angry about that. God didn't look down upon humanity and say, oh, look at them. <laughs> he didn't look down upon humanity as like a stray puppy. Oh, so cute, irresistible. I must have them. They're lovely. Like Andrex puppies, they're just gooey and cooey. He looks down upon people who have said, give us your stuff. And you can go away. Not interested. And loves us. He looked down upon those who rejected him and loved them. God's love is it's unmerited. Don't deserve it. We haven't done anything to earn it. This is love. Not that we loved God, but he loved us. It's unmerited. And the other little thing here, just to say, it's sacrificial. That's obvious, isn't it? God sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Now, this is the bit that people really don't like, I think, or some don't like. This uh, this phrase, atoning sacrifice, literally propitiation, it means to turn away someone's anger. To turn away someone's anger. No, we don't like that. Why would God be angry? Okay, Why doesn't God just calm down? Well, God's anger, the problem is God's anger is not like ours. 
And we have problem distinguishing. Our anger is petulant and imbalanced. We get angry if someone forgets our birthday and we find that personally offensive. There's child abuse going on in the nation. Well, yeah, whatever. Who's the blow? I don't really care about that. But someone has forgotten my birthday. That, that angers us because it's personal. The wider issues we don't care about. But God's not like that. He's not a petulant, self-centered anger. But it's his unrelenting, consistent hostility to all that is evil. Proportionately. God gets angry at the right things, in the right way. And what you and I need, because he's angry with us, the way we've treated him, what you and I need is for his anger to be averted, turned away. How does that happen? Well, it happens by God sending his son as a sacrifice to atone as a sacrifice to turn away his anger. And you can tell the seriousness of the crime by the sacrifice that is required. Silly things. If a man offends his wife in the morning, he's rude to her, he knows he's rude to her, he comes home with a bunch of flowers to satisfy her anger, to turn her anger away. And that's fine, that's okay. But if he comes home with a bunch of flowers having hit her and beaten her, well, that's not sufficient. That's, that's woefully insufficient. There needs to be much greater uh, satisfaction made there. There needs to be a greater sacrifice on his behalf. When John says here, God was angry and he sent his son as an atoning sacrifice, he sent his son, verse 9, his one and only son, that reveals the extent of the problem. Our offense against God is so great. The only way that his anger can be satisfied, his just settled hostility to our evil, is by the death of his son. Nothing else will do. That's the extent of our problem. The Bible is clear that one day we face a day of judgment. It says it there, do you remember, just over the page in chapter 4, verse 17. We'll stand before God on the day of judgment. And that day we give an account for how we've treated the Lord, how we've treated other people. And the universal condemnation upon mankind is guilty. Guilty. And God's anger is against us. But God has sent his son as an atoning sacrifice to turn away the anger of God upon to Jesus Christ, the Son. It's an extraordinary thing. When Jesus dies upon the cross, he turns from us onto himself the righteous anger of God. It's not a pagan sort of sacrifice because God himself presents to himself a sacrifice that is God himself. It's complicated, I know, but in one sense it's very, very simple. God dies for us. God dies for us, in the man Jesus Christ. Now you need to know that. People don't like that, this talk of anger. But you need to know that to understand love. That's why John has put it here. It's not random that he's talking about these things in a passage upon love. He's saying, unless you understand quite what God has saved you from, quite what God has done for you, you don't really understand love. Let me put it this way. 
If I said to you, Robert Cook saved Kim Deer, that's great, isn't it? How do you respond? Robert Cook saved Kim Deer. How do you respond to that? I think a normal response would be, save from what? Saved her £10 on her shopping by giving her a voucher? Well, that's nice. Saved her from embarrassment when she turned up in fancy dress and it wasn't a fancy dress party? That's kind, that's useful. He saved her, good for him. What about if he saved her from dying by dying in her place? Well, that's a bit more significant. It generates a little bit more of a response. Do you remember the story? True story. About two years ago, I think now, uh, Robert Cook was a, um, uh, a parachuting instructor in the States. And he had uh, half a dozen people in the plane one day going up and they were going to do a parachute jump. They took off from uh, uh, St. Louis, Missouri. And uh, the pilot, uh, unfortunately on takeoff, hit a pole, an uh, electric pole, which uh, caught in the uh, one of the engines. And as the plane took off, the engine caught fire. It didn't get very far and it started to plummet rapidly. They hadn't got high enough for parachutes to be of any use. It just wouldn't have opened in time to make any difference. And so Robert Cook realized what was going to happen. The plane was going to crash. So he grabbed the woman nearest to him, this woman Kim Deer, held her and said, I'm going to strap you to me. This plane is about to crash. When we hit the ground, make sure you're on my back. I'll take the brunt of the fall. You should be all right. That's precisely what he did. Took the harness from a tandem jump, strapped her to him. And just before the plane hit the ground, he jumped out. He took the fall and died in doing so. Kim got up, Kim dear, and walked away. Scratches. Robert Cook saved Kim dear. Now when she tells that story to her family, what do they think of this man, Robert Cook? He's, this man saved me. Did he? That's nice, dear. What did he save you from? Oh, from death. Oh. And what did it cost him? His life. Oh. Oh, that's love, isn't it? You see, you need to know what you're saved from in order to understand how big the love is. John is saying here, okay, we need to love one another because God has loved you. How has he loved you? He's loved you by saving you from an eternity facing God's anger to have an eternity enjoying God's presence. And he's done so by coming down in the man Jesus Christ and dying in your place by taking that for you. That's love, he says. You need to understand that is love. Jesus' death, it doesn't just save us to have a more significant life now. It doesn't save us so that we can have a, a, a slightly better quality of knowing God now. And those things are true. But the death of Jesus Christ saved us from an eternity facing God's anger. That's why it matters. And it cost an enormous amount for him to do that. And that's love, says John. Verse 10, this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. So what, so what, John? Verse 11, dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Show that sort of love, he says. Show a love to others in church, it's unmerited, they don't deserve it, but love them. Show a love that is sacrificial that costs you. Show that sort of love. 
he says. God loved us. Let me briefly um, take you through these three things uh, uh, very quickly. The first then, what is the first big implication of this for John? Well, the first is this, verses 12 to 16. Christians know God's presence if they believe this. Let me just read it and think about it, really. Verse 12, no one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us, and his love is made complete in us. We know that we live in him and he in us because he's given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in him, and he in God. Now this is very dense, but let me just try and make it very simple. Verse 13, we know that we have a relationship with God, because, second half of verse 13, God has given us his Spirit. How do we know that? Verse 14, because we testify that God the Father sent his Son, Jesus Christ, to be a Savior, just as I've described. That's what he's saying. Genuine Christians, they know God's presence if they believe what I've just outlined. You have real confidence if you believe that. You're genuinely believers if you trust that God loved you so much to send his Son as an atoning sacrifice. That's the first little implication. Second, verses 16 to 18, a little bit longer. Christians know a perfect love that drives out fear. Let me read um, from the top of uh, page 1228. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in him. In this way, love is made complete among us so that we'll have confidence on the day of judgment, because in this world we're like him. Now again, it's a fairly dense little section. But to simplify, John wants every believer to have confidence when they die, so to have confidence throughout their lives, that when they stand before God on judgment day, they have nothing to fear. In fact, they can look forward with confidence. The phone went this morning uh, in our house, at uh, nine o'clock, which was a phone call to say that uh, my wife's grandmother has contracted pneumonia. She's in her mid-90s, but she's contracted pneumonia. And um, they offered her treatment. And her response as a Christian believer was, no, no. I'm in my mid-90s. I'm ready to go. I'm ready to see the Lord. I've nothing to fear. I'll go and see him. I'll go today if that's helpful to you. She's very kind. <laughs> and she probably will. She'll go today or tomorrow. Nothing to fear. Just with confidence. How do you have that, according to John? How do you have that sort of confidence? Well, let's uh, work back from verse 17. We'll have confidence on the day of judgment. How? Verse 17, just working backwards. If love is made complete among us, okay, how is love made complete among us? Verse 16, if we know that God is love and we live a life of love. That's what he's saying. If you know that God has loved you, if you live a life loving others, then love is made complete and you have real confidence when you stand, uh, that you can stand rightly before the Lord. Very interesting for John. Love is only complete when you know it and you show it. 
You only understand love if you've received it and you demonstrate it to other people. That is complete love. Now, it's, a, it's fairly dense, but let me try and put it this way. Let's go back to uh, Elsa, the girl. Uh, the girl who was uh, neglected as a child but then adopted age five. So age five, Elsa has her first parents' evening coming up. And so she says to her new adopted parents, or they're having a conversation over the breakfast table, and they say, oh, it's parents' evening tomorrow night, Elsa. How are you feeling about that? I'm dreading it. Oh, why? Well, my behavior at school is bad, I know that. And the teachers don't like me. They hate me, I know that. And so when you go on parents' evening and hear that I've been bad and the teachers don't like me, you'll probably reject me. You'll probably send me back to the home. And I don't want that to happen, so I'm dreading it. How sad. How sad. Fear. It's just fear. Roll it forward. One year, two, three years later. Three years later. Who else, sir? It's parents' evening at the end of the week. How, you, how do you feel about that? Oh, I'm really looking forward to it. Oh, why? Well, because I'm very proud of the work I've done this term. And you can see that I'm excited that you'll see some of the things that I've made that are stuck on the walls and uh, written in my book. And I think Miss will say that I've really made progress and I'm working well with other people. Great. Confidence. But what has happened? Well, again, in that three-year period, she has known the love of her parents, which has changed her. So she's able to love other people. Confidence. But there's the two things there. She knows the love of her parents. She knows now that whatever the teacher says, they're not going to send her back. She's theirs. She belongs to them. She's part of the family. Confidence in their love. And showing love. The two things. She knows love. She's displaying it. And that, says John, that gives you confidence. Or he puts it um, the other way around in verse 18. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear. Because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. Don't be thrown by the word perfect. It doesn't mean flawless. It just means active, in action, working its way out. John says, if you live in God, if you trust, sorry, if you live in God, that is, you know his love, you trust his death for you in Jesus Christ, it will change you. So, how do you have confidence before the Lord? That when you stand before him, he'll say, welcome, it's great to see you. How do you have confidence? There's two things. One, you know that Jesus Christ has died to take away God's anger against you. He loves you. You know that. And two, you can see that that love has transformed how you relate to other people. Must have number one before number two. But those are the two things he's saying here. Christians know a perfect love that drives out fear. And so in his final comment, verses 19 to 21, here's the point, it's very simple really. Christians love because he loved us. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he's a liar. For anyone who does not love his brother whom he's seen cannot love God whom he's not seen. And he's given us this command, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Very blunt. John is saying, NASCOM down the road, the new and superior Church of the Messiah, 
They claim that they love God. They claim they have these wonderful experiences of God. They don't love other Christians. It's piffle. It's nonsense. Load of old rubbish. You can know, you can easily tell if someone loves God and has known the love of God in how they treat other people. Very simple test, he says. Don't be shocked by that. But you will love. It's inevitable, he says. You will love if you know the love of God and you've been transformed by him. I don't know if you saw last month, Eric Lomax died. Uh, Eric Lomax was, um, uh, he's famous because he's written, a, uh, written the account of his life, The Railway Man, being turned into a film next year, Colin Firth and others uh, uh, playing the role. Uh, the Railway Man, Eric Lomax, he worked in the Second World War. He was captured by the uh, Japanese and held as a prisoner of war, worked on the Death Railway, the, uh, the Thailand to Burma Railway, Bridge on the River Kwai, that railway, uh, for three and a half years until the end of the war. Uh, Eric Lomax was uh, uh, tortured for information, Repeatedly during those three and a half years, he was waterboarded on numerous occasions, beaten endlessly, numerous bones broken. Eventually, when uh, the prisoners were released, the doctor said there was not a single part of his body, from his neck down to his ankles, that wasn't bruised or evidence of a broken bone. Imprisoned in solitary confinement for, uh, on numerous occasions, three and a half years in that prison camp. And, uh, of course, eventually released after the war and went about his life, and superficially all was well. He seemed to recover, but he was an angry man. And on frequent occasions, he'd have these vivid nightmares where he'd see the man who tortured him and interrogated him, uh, Takashi Nagasi, who'd been the, uh, uh, the, uh, the prison guard. And he saw this man, Mr. Nagasi, in his dreams, who would wake up every night, bitter, angry. And so eventually this started to destroy Eric Lomax's life. He drove away his family, None of them would speak to him, and he wouldn't speak to any of them. He was a lonely, bitter man. One day he met, he was on a train journey, and met a woman, Patty, who listened to him and loved him, and put up with his violent mood swings, put up with his anger, his uh, violent throwing things around, put up with these things, listened to him, encouraged him to go, and um, uh, received treatments uh, medically, counselling, and over a period of years, under her love, it changed him. In 1993, he managed to meet Mr. Nagasi. They'd had an exchange of letters. They met on the, uh, the Kwai Bridge over the river. Extraordinary meeting. When uh, Nagasi, when they met, he could just cry. He just cried and cried and cried and said repeatedly, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. But all Eric Lomax said was, well, Mr. Nagasi, we both survived. Let's move on. <laughs> a man of his time, somewhat, in his emotional expression. But he forgave him. And they became good friends and had an uh, exchange of letters up until Eric's death last month. A man who'd, who had been treated appallingly and was angry and bitter about it but in his words, was utterly transformed by the love of Patty, who became his wife. Now John would say, how much more the love of God, who despite your hostility to him, your enmity with him, your abuse of him, loved you, and sent his one and only son to die to save you from his righteous anger for in eternity. If you know that love, says John, 
It transforms you. It changes you like nothing else will. And you'll love one another because he loved you. Let's pray together. Our Father, we praise you for the love shown to us in Jesus Christ. We praise you above all that it is a love that saves us from an eternity lost, facing anger. It saves us for an eternity of joy in paradise with you. And we thank you that if we know that, if we understand that, if we absorb that into our hearts, that will make an enormous difference to our lives. There is a a power to change in your love that is beyond anything else this world can offer. And so, Father, we thank you that that's true amongst us as a church family. And we pray increasingly so that we'd love one another because we know quite how much we've been loved by you.